Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of a head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by my second OBE guest. She has been named one of Forbes World Top 50 Women in Tech. She's also a board trustee for Comic Relief, one of the UK's best-known charity organisations. And she's a powerhouse in female representation and empowerment in the technology industry. The feedback I have received about her makes me quite eager and excited for this conversation today. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Quality Transformation. Businesses are continuously looking to improve performance and operations. The ideas are not the issue, rather realising them is often the roadblock, and in particular when digital technologies come into play. Quality Transformation brings in significant experience and the right skill set to support you in complex transformations. Our senior advisor can support you by delivering strong projects, programmes, portfolio leadership, coaching, as well as performing independent quality assurance. Visit us at quality-transformation.com and get in touch for further information. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Professor Susan Elizabeth Black, OBE, more readily known as Sue Black, is an inspiring, multi-award winning computer scientist, academic and social entrepreneur. She's also known as a radical thinker, problem solver, a woman, after my own art, um, keynote speaker and a serial author. She's a board advisory member of the UK Government Digital Service and has had 20 plus years experience in academia. She also has a PhD in software engineering and over 40 publications. As mentioned, Sue's a champion for women in technology and a great game changer. She's a founder and was the chair of BCS Women, which is the UK's first online network for women in technology. And she's generally known for her successful online and offline campaigning and activism across digital social inclusion. If that was not enough, Sue briefly dabbled in politics when she became Women's Equality Party candidate for the 2020 London mayoral election. We will go in greater detail about some of Sue's awards later, but Just to add to this introduction, in 2015, Sue was identified as the seventh most influential woman in UK IT by Computer Weekly. She won the first John Iverson Award from the British Computer Society and was appointed OBE in 2016 New Year's Honours List for Services to Technology. So without further ado, Sue, welcome to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thanks very much, Elaine. It's lovely to be here. That's great. Thank you again. Um, I'm going to try to minimise... COVID-19 topics in this discussion. Um, We are seeing bits of the light at the end of this tunnel, so it'd be nice to talk about other topics that are current and and relevant today. Your reputation precedes you, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, When I told friends and colleagues that I'd be talking with you on Heads Talk, they were excited about this, and we all eagerly await your input today. I want to dive um, right into it uh, and talk about some of your initiatives and campaigns that you've worked on in the past or current. Um, The first one, Bletchley Park. 
I hear your name, and Bletchley Park, and to be honest, I had a passing understanding of this. It was the fact that I'd be talking with you today, um, I had to do a full research on it, and once again, the words inspiring comes to mind. Please tell my audience about this. Note that many will not be from the UK, but other regions in, the U in Europe, and potentially across the globe. So a, a full description will, will be welcome, and if people want to find out more about it, please, at the end, um, tell them where they can read about this amazing campaign. So what was Bletchley Park all about? Thanks very much, Elaine. Um, well, I guess the first time I went to Bletchley Park, I, I didn't know much about it at all. So on my first visit in 2003, so a while ago now, I knew that uh, the Code Breakers worked at Bletchley Park in the UK. And in my head, I thought it was about 50, 50 old blokes for some reason. So I don't know if that's something that I'd seen on TV. Um, but Bletchley Park was the place where uh, the code breakers worked during the second world war in the uk and um i so i i went to a meeting there i think it's about 50 miles north of london so i went to the site which is now like a 26 acre site mm -hmm. went for a look around and honestly all i knew was that some code breakers worked there in the second world war and that was about it really um and then on my on my first trip there after i went to the meeting i went for a look around the whole site walked into uh, one of the the blocks there. So there's like a there's a mansion house on the site. There's a big lake, um, and there are various kind of outbuildings and huts dotted around the site. Um, so I went into one of these these uh, buildings and started chatting to these guys in there who were they were kind of building this machine, which I couldn't work out what it was. So I went over to chat to them about it, and they told me that it was. Turing's bomb machine so a machine that was used to industrialize the code breaking process during the second world war mm -hmm. um, so they told me a bit about that and about Alan Turing who'd um, who designed it um, and at the end of that conversation uh, they said to me well why are you here so I said oh I'm here representing this group of women in computing and they said oh did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women so I was like no I, I didn't know that um and like i just said i i thought it was for some reason i thought it was 50 old blokes um maybe from something i'd seen on tv i'm not sure um so i said oh that no that's amazing i didn't know that how many people worked here and they said more than ten thousand. so so at that point i was completely blown away you know i'm i'm really interested in uh in sort of the history of technology uh but also stuff like cryptography and and you know also kind of just a general world history uh, and was amazed to find out that that 10,000 people had worked uh, in this place that I'd only kind of vaguely heard of um, during the whole six years of the Second World War, um, that more than half of them were women. It turns out it was about 80% women. So about 8,000 women had worked there. And I didn't know anything about it. So I was completely intrigued. I went away that time uh, from that visit to Bletchley Park, having just kind of found out all of that information, um, keen to create an, an oral history project so to record the memories of the women that worked there because I just felt that their story wasn't heard at all um, and so did that got some funding uh, run an oral history project so interviewed 15 of the women that worked there and then the launch of that project um, found out that actually Bletchley Park itself so it so it was uh, and still is a museum uh, but Bletchley Park itself then was in the words of the director, teetering on a financial knife edge. So he was really worried that Bletchley Park itself, the site where all the code breaking happened, was going to have to close. Um, and then a few weeks after that, I was invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park. 
and at the reception did a proper tour for the first time. So I'd not done a proper tour before um, and went around, took about an hour, went around the site with one of the veterans. So one of the guys that had worked there during the Second World War. Um, and he was telling us about all these individual code breaking achievements in different buildings, um, you know, and all, all kind of like very exciting stories of what had happened there during the war. And then at the end, we stood kind of looking at one of the huts, Hut 6, which was, it looked very dilapidated. It had a blue tarpaulin over one end. It looked about like it was about to fall down. Um, he just told us about all these code breaking achievements that happened in that particular hut. And then he said then the, the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So potentially the work done here saved 22 million lives. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, this place can't close. I must do something about it. And so basically from there started a campaign. So at that point, I was head of a computer science department at the University of Westminster. I emailed all the heads and professors of computing in the country so you told them the story, said we've got to say Bletchley Park, um, got a letter into the Times newspaper signed by all of us and um, set up a blog, got the BBC interested, got on BBC News uh, in the UK. We were like on the front page of the BBC website. So that was back in July 2008. Mm-hmm. So got quite a lot of publicity quite quickly. Um, a couple of co-breakers got in touch, which was amazing. Various people got in touch. But in terms of what actually happened for Bletchley Park, nothing much changed right people knew the story but but nothing really changed um and so it wasn't really until the end of that year so the end of 2008 i started using twitter and quite quickly realized that just by typing bletchley park into the search box in twitter i could find anyone in the world on twitter who was already talking about bletchley park and i could have a chat with them and say you know did you know the situation yeah. um and uh and Uh, So I started a blog kind of detailing what I was doing in the campaign uh, through Twitter, started meeting more and more people that that wanted to help with the campaign. Um, Got people like Stephen Fry, who's known in the UK as a national treasure. And at that time was the most, had the most Twitter Twitter followers of anyone in the UK. Mm -hmm. So um, got him involved uh, through Twitter again. And, And basically through using social media to reach a massive audience of people uh, that cared about Bletchley Park, ran a campaign for three years in the end. So 2008 to 2011. Um, and eventually in 2011, got Google involved as well. So they helped out and um, Bletchley Park received £4.1 million from the Heritage Lottery mm-hmm. Fund in the UK, which along with match funding came to about £6 million, which they could then use to to renovate the site and then uh, we knew that Bletchley Park would be safe and so that's three three well that's nearly 20 years in a nutshell uh, but three years of the campaign um, the whole story is in my book uh, Saving Bletchley Park which you can get from Amazon. <laughs> yes and um, I think you broke all records in terms of becoming the fastest crowdfunded, crowdfunded. book. Yeah absolutely so so when we crowdfunded the book which I think was 2016 yeah, uh, might be 2015. I can't remember. Um, yeah, so so we crowdfunded the book in the shortest time ever. So at that time, that's uh, the record breaker. Yes, <laughs> code breaking and record breaking all in one. Um, yeah, and yeah. people can get that book where? Sorry, from Amazon or um, or online bookshops, bookstores. Right. Okay, yeah. no, that, that that's that's an incredible story. Um, now um, you. 
in terms of the listeners, you've heard um, Sue explain it with her own words. So um, you know where to get the book if you want more information about that story. Um, let's stay with some of your initiatives and campaign and, and let's talk about another one. Um, you clearly have a love and passion for all things technology and yeah. using it to empower people, in particular women. Um, can you tell my audience about the, the, the hashtag Tech Moms, a, a programme you were running and working in conjunction with Facebook London headquarters? What's that all about? Sure. Well, so, you know, I haven't, we haven't really mentioned, but I come from a background of uh, some disadvantage. So um, my mum died when I was 12. And so I left my dad remarried. I wasn't happy. I left home in school at 16, mm-hmm. um, moved to London from Essex. So like moved 50 miles into, into London, got a job working in London with refugees, um, got married at 20, had three children by 23 because I had my daughter and then I had twin boys two years later. And then, um, unfortunately, my marriage broke down. We all had to, uh, or me, me and the children had to run away to a women's refuge uh, early one morning um, in 1987. Um, so we lived in a women's refuge for six months. And then, uh, you know, I became a single parent. And then after six months, we managed to get uh, an apartment in uh, Brixton. So in sort of inner city London, I guess, and kind of had to start life again there as a single parent. I thought about going back to work but realized that actually I'd left school at 16 I didn't really have many qualifications and my um you know the amount of money that I would earn wouldn't even really pay for childcare. so I I just wasn't in a position to to earn enough um to look after the family so then I started thinking about going back into education so I went to the local college and did a a maths course there maths was my best subject at school Mm -hmm. And then uh, went on and did a degree in computing at a local university and then on to do a PhD in software engineering. And so now kind of looking, looking back at that technology and education have just so dramatically changed my life and and life chances, but not only uh, my life, but also my children's. And now I've got four children now and five grandchildren. Um, So, you know, I can just see the effects down the generations of me having access to education, free access to education, particularly in technology and, and just the massive change it's had on me and my family. And so uh, about 10 years ago, I was trying to work out, what how can i try and help everyone to get kind of excited about technology and realize the potential um, of technology i started running uh app design and coding workshops with uh, kids in school so with seven-year-old children um and that was kind of before we had all the sort of major major initiatives that we've got now around kids and coding um and and that went really well and i got the parents to uh, come in at the end of the day after the kids had been um, working on their coding and app design and, and I wanted the parents to have a go because I just thought if these kids now go home if the parents understand and value what they've been doing then they're more likely to encourage them to, to go into tech to continue uh, you know learning in this area and I noticed when I asked the parents to have a go at what the kids have been doing in general so not everyone but in general the dads just kind of like stepped in and had a go whereas a lot of the mums are really apprehensive and that just kind of started a thought in my head you know maybe I should teach um, tech skills to mums. Maybe that's what I should do. And tech mums was kind of born out of that thought, really, in that I just thought, yeah. well, I found out also some research which showed that the main positive influencing factors on kids doing well at school at age 11 in literacy and numeracy, the two biggest factors were their mum's education and their home environment. 
So that kind of like led me to think uh, that, you know, along with the way that technology and education had changed my life, that maybe I should just put together a program to target mums rather than trying to teach everyone tech skills. Yeah. Maybe I should target mums. And also then if we got mums to be tech savvy, then we're creating sort of female tech ambassadors as well. And we definitely need that in technology uh, with the percentage being about 17% women in tech. Um, so kind of for me, it just ticked lots of boxes, I guess, about what I cared about. So I put a program together, started teaching it in an inner city school in uh, Tower Hamlet. So in a quite deprived area of London in 2013 I think and um, you mentioned Facebook so we've run various initiatives over the years and uh, one of them was we worked with Facebook to uh, and uh, an organization called Homestart UK so we had a funded project which was specifically created to target young mums and what we realized quite quickly was that quite a lot of the time young mums just can't get out and get along somewhere so tech mums is normally taught in person pre-covid anyway Mm -hmm. so and um, we realized that lots of young mums, you know, didn't even have bus fare or whatever to get to a school or college or wherever that we were running the program. So we created a, an online program um, working with Facebook in London um, called Tech Mums TV. So if anyone's uh, on Facebook, you can search Tech Mums TV and see the, uh, the episodes that we created. And what we really wanted to do there was to create a kind of, I guess, magazine type, uh, online magazine type, almost like a TV show. Uh, where we had mums coming in talking about their experiences uh, and kind of and like tech tech advice people coming in talk about for example how to use online banking um, uh, all different sorts of tech subjects so it's kind of a mix of mums and technology together in a hopefully accessible and uh, reasonably fun to watch uh, way and so we've had various initiatives over the years um, still going strong. We've got a new CEO, Victoria, who's just taken over. Um, Our aim is to reach a million mums. Um, And uh, well, sorry, go on. Where are you with that at the moment and that number? Well, we've, we've got, we've, we're in the hundreds rather than thousands even, but if you count, so if we count Facebook in terms of face to face, we're under a thousand. Um, But if you count um, the mums that uh, watch Tech Mums TV and interacted with us there, then we had, I think 300,000 views within uh, a couple of months. Yes. So, and, and actually Facebook said that we had at, at the time we broadcast, we had a higher engagement rate than David Beckham. <laughs> so, so we were getting lots of engagement. We didn't quite have the millions that David Beckham has uh, yeah. watching though. So, um, but we're, we're kind of like gearing up to scale at the moment. So kind of watch this space. All right. And it seems like you've been working remotely long before COVID has forced that onto us. So well done. Yeah, you. absolutely. Okay. Um, moving on. Um, you've been described as someone that embodies the traits of a modern leader and you've touched upon it if I will elaborate and I will elaborate by saying um, particularly in regards to social media use um, you make smart use of um, the likes of Twitter and other social media platforms and I think it was the BBC technology correspondent um, Rory um, Kethlin Jones commented on your sophisticated use of social media platforms so you are, let's just create a scenario here. You have an idea, an initiative or a, a campaign that you are passionate about. What are the things you do, go about doing or have done in the past that speaks to the statement made about you in this area? I mean, can you give us some examples of this and how has that 
culture. You, you touched upon it in terms of Twitter and the kind of searches that you do, Twitter, yeah. the bletchley part. But what else are you doing that makes someone say that um, Sue is sort of a smart user of all these social media platforms? Well, it's, it's quite hard to tell about yourself. Um, but I guess, because to me, what I do is, is the obvious thing to do. Um, but I'd say really that I like solving problems. So that's kind of part of my DNA anyway. Um, I really like solving problems. And I suppose what social media gives us is, you know, rather than pre-social media, it, it would have been very difficult to, to find the particular people that you actually want to talk to. So, you know, it just seems like such a long time ago, um, really now that we didn't have social media, haven't been using it for 12 years, I guess, quite, quite a lot. Um, but, you know, just the, kind of that thing that I was saying about Bletchley Park, you know, like in terms of the campaign, if, if you want to... You know, the easiest thing to, if you want to find customers for a business, um, social media is just amazing and particularly Twitter uh, and Facebook for that because you can, you can search using terms, the terms that you're interested in. So with the Bletchley Park campaign, I could uh, put Bletchley Park, put code breaking, all different sorts of um, search terms, hashtags into Twitter and look at who was talking about those things already and then start conversations with them. And, and honestly, in terms of social media use, I would say that that's, that's the basics really, because all those people are out there. You know, if you've got a product that you want to sell, um, they're, they're, your market's out there. And because there are so many people using Twitter and Facebook, mm -hmm. you, you know, your first uh, kind of like, first way to, to find those people and engage with them is just by searching using the sort of um, search terms that, that they'll be talking about. Um, so I think that's, that's a great place to start and then have kind of like real authentic conversations with people rather than thinking that you've got to, or, you know, everyone's got to behave or like speak in a certain way within a company. Mm -hmm. um, just be, you know, like if a company's employing you, they're paying you money, they should trust you to uh, do the right thing for the company, right? So for um, if you're running a company, you should be employing people that you know will be trustworthy. You know, I've seen examples of where companies have said, you're not allowed to use social media because blah, 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 blah. It might, you know, like um, sort of tarnish our company image or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, well, if, if you think people are gonna do that, you shouldn't be employing them is, is my um, point really, my point of view. And so, in terms of then finding and engaging new customers, if your staff within your organization are empowered to be themselves whilst keeping the uh, company mission in mind, then they're the best people to, to find people to, to chat to your new prospective customers and start conversations with. And, and for that to be an interactive um, conversation rather than you know I still see twitter accounts which just broadcast stuff and you know that's not really what social media is all about social media is all about finding people and engaging with them in a real and authentic way i think the clue is in the name isn't it social <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and i mean so, so i kind of talk about where in terms of the bletchley park campaign and what we did with social media I'll go into a lot more detail uh, there about what we actually did and how we find found people and uh, kind of what our algorithm, I guess, was for um, sort of building support in the campaign. But, um, you know, but, it, but it's kind of what I just described in a nutshell, really, with a few added points. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Um, 
As mentioned in the um, introduction, um, you have received many awards um, for your tireless work to technology and women in technology. I say tireless because um, I've read quite a bit about you and I've listened to some of your speeches about your life and yeah. you've just given us a, a very, very quick summary, probably 30 seconds of your whole mm. life. Yeah. Um, firstly, you know, after reading about it and hearing some of your speeches and listening to some of your speeches, I'm, uh, as I say, I mean, all with your, your strength, your, your fortitude and, and determination under very um, difficult circumstances. You're very open about your story, as you are with us um, today. And yeah. out of this tragedy born the Sue Black that we all know today. So congratulations on receiving your OBE for services to technology. Um, tell my audience about when it happened, you know, the whole receiving, the process of receiving OBE. Oh, when you performed, your response, who was with you when you received the honours? I mean, how do you feel about receiving it? And has it spurred you to do any other things? Yeah, well, it was just incredible, really. I mean, it's not... You know, the things that I've done in my life, I've done because I thought they were the right thing to do, I guess. And, and I think actually, in a way, that's the best thing to do is kind of, you know, it kind of links into following your passion and doing the things that you really care about. Because, of course, then you'll do them better. Um, you'll do them well and you'll, I guess, have, have the biggest impact with what you're doing. So, you know, I've done everything that I've done because I thought it was the right thing for me to do. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, like one, well, it must have been 20, uh, if it's New Year's honours, it must have been 2015. So like in, I think, November 2015, I, um, I was working from home one day, uh, a letter came through the door, so I picked it up and it said it was from the, the cabinet office in the UK. So I kind of knew, so it was like an official government letter. Mm -hmm. So I just thought to myself, this is either really good or really bad, and I don't know which one it is. So I kind of like opened the letter with some apprehension, and, and it basically was a, a short letter saying that, uh, I, I, that, you know, the Queen wanted to give me this award, and, um, well, you know, was I happy to accept it, and... Uh, and basically it was just like, is this your correct name? Is this your correct address? Do you accept this uh, honour? And so I just read it and kind of like in disbelief and then it gradually sort of sank into me. And I think I just actually, I didn't even make it away from the door because I was like reading it at the door. <laughs> I think I just sat down on the floor and started crying actually thinking, oh my goodness, you know, um, how amazing, how amazing is this? Um, and it also said I had to keep it quiet. So I had to keep it really quiet for, for I think, six to eight weeks, which, weeks, which was really difficult. Yeah. Um, I told my husband, but I think I didn't tell my children. Because um, I was too scared if I started telling, you yeah. know, like more than one person, I'd probably tell someone by mistake. And, you know, so, so you have to keep it quiet. So I kept it quiet for uh, six weeks. Then it was announced, like in the New Year's Honours, so like the end of 2015 beginning of 2016 and then the actual day was May the 20th um, 2016 and that was an amazing day um, I'd um, been so I you can take uh, three guests with you so I had to decide with four children and a husband who to take with me so that was a difficult decision um, but I decided to um, take my husband my sister and uh, my oldest son because he, he was about to move to Singapore and uh, I just thought and you know my other children were still in the UK so I just thought if anything else happens um, he won't be able to come because he'll be in Singapore so but I mean that was just the decision making around that was horrific for me um, 
And so we had an amazing day, really, because we I just won an award from um, the Maserati 100, like women who get um, sorry, people who uh, give back, basically. Yeah. So I just won a Maserati award. And um, and uh, after at the awards, um, everyone was kind of joking because there were a few of us there together. You know, do we get a free Maserati uh, as our award? Which unfortunately we didn't. Uh, but they did. But they did say to me when I was kind of like jokingly saying that to the people there that um, uh, if if you've got some like really special occasion where you know possibly you could have a Maserati for the day. So I was like, oh. So then, so then when I got this uh, letter and was going to be going to Buckingham Palace, I thought if that's not a special day, what is? so so I contacted Maserati and and amazingly they gave us a car not only a car but a chauffeur so we had a chauffeur driven car for the day which was very fancy and lovely um so the car um picked me uh and my husband and uh sister up uh in the morning and also uh woman's hour which is a BBC Radio 4 program that's on at 10 a.m every morning had also contacted me because they'd I possibly I can't remember if I wrote to them or if they just contacted me um inviting me on the show so I had an interview with them uh, I think 8 a.m so I think we left about half six in the morning in our chauffeur driven Maserati we were driven into London went to BBC headquarters um did uh, an interview with um Jerry M- Jenny Murray who's the like really well known uh, in the UK anyway presenter did an interview with her and then our Maserati was waiting outside, got back in the Maserati, got driven down to uh, Buckingham Palace. And just that was so surreal. It, 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 yeah. I was to say, the whole thing must have been completely surreal. I just yeah, it really, really how was. The, how the neighbours twitched their curtains as the Maserati <laughs> yeah. you up. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, like driving into Buckingham Palace through the gates, you know, I can like and driving through into the courtyard. It was just like, you know, it's sort of thing that you see on TV. You don't actually think you will ever be in a position to do that. So yes, so so in our chauffeur-driven Maserati, uh, (laughs) we're driven up to uh, and dropped off in the courtyard in Buckingham Palace. And then I had to go, as soon as we went in the door, I had to go off to the right, I think, and and my guests had to go off to the left. Uh, And we went up to the right, and then I was in a room with maybe, don't know, 100 or 200 other people who were getting awards that day and uh, we got kind of taken through what we had to do you know you have to um you know so many paces this way so many paces that way um uh, and to um and if we you know we didn't have to but we you know if we wanted to we could curtsy mm-hmm. um and so we were taught how to curtsy if we wanted to do that or how to bow if we were a man and um yeah, and so that was that. And then, you know, suddenly we were being taken through and we were kind of um, through the palace and into uh, uh, an ante room. So a room next to the, I think it's the ballroom where it was held and in a, in a queue, uh, a line of people. And we were, you know, like one by one going through and uh, getting our awards and then walking through and, uh, and joining our, our families to then um, see everyone else get their awards. Um, so that that was just completely amazing. That, that sounds completely uh, <laughs> It kind of feels like a dream, you know, thinking back. And, and then afterwards, um, again, driving in, in the Maserati, driving out of Buckingham Palace, with there were tourists like taking photos of us. I guess they thought that we were, I don't know who they thought yeah, we were. Please, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, tourists taking photos uh, in our Maserati again. And to, uh, oh, I booked a lovely restaurant around the corner for for lunch with my um, family, you know, my other kids came along and uh, yeah, it was just 
yeah it feels like I dreamt it up it doesn't really feel like it actually happened because it was so out of yeah not my normal life (laughs) (laughs) well it's definitely a day to remember and thanks for sharing that um with my listeners how wonderful um let's move on um yeah a very different subject um yeah still something that is very close to your heart and very close to what you do you are a strong advocate for justice human rights and fairness where you see it should be addressed yeah i would like your take on this matter for my my listeners it was a subject that knocked covid19 off the front pages for a while yeah that was the two incidents in in the u.s where one was george floyd a black man in police custody whose life was extinguished in front of us by a police officer and the other was the the amy cooper the new york dog on a leash and christian cooper the the bird watcher incident both yeah. catapulted um the continuous issues of black lives in, um, in america and across the globe to the front pages uh, of newspapers it brought the black lives matter movement to the fore yeah. And now there are debates after debates after debates about this, largely about the, the education of people um, on racism and how that imp- impact the lives of Baines. Um, let's move this into the corporate space. Um, my question um, to you is, what have you seen that you found or are finding encouraging to show um, inclusion, especially in the workplace for Baines, what corporations and or organizations you'd like to highlight um, about the good work they are doing in that space? And what more do you believe needs to be done? Well, I think, you know, we've, what, what's interesting, you know, these incidents are utterly horrific. Um, and I think particularly in the, the black community, mm-hmm everyone's been very aware of these incidents for a very, very long time, you know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what's changed recently is through the fact that we've got social media now, you know, pre-social media, again, you, you, how would you connect with hundreds or thousands or even millions of people around the world around a topic that you want to talk about? You just couldn't do it. Um, You could only do it if you're in a position of power. Um, And so I think, one of the, the, the great things that technology, the internet, that social media have brought us is the ability to see what's happening to people all around the world and not just people in positions of power, not just people that are chosen to be highlighted by the, the um, media, but people living everyday lives and particularly people in those everyday lives experiencing utterly horrific treatment Um, And the thing is now, no one can deny that that's happened now, you know, whereas previously, um, I guess, you know, like in in my own life, thinking back to being a sort of teenage girl in the 70s, you know, it was quite standard, really, if if you're in a pub or even in a a workplace to for men, for example, so some men, obviously not all men, but but to get groped by some guy and not to be able to do anything about it at all. and so I think lots of people's personal experiences have just stayed being personal experiences because how are you going to share that with lots of other people? And so I think, you know, things like the, the Me Too movement, which has really enabled people to connect with each other. And, you know, it's, it's enabled everyone that's experienced 
horrific treatment of one sort of another or another to talk about that but also to find other people that have experienced the same kind of horrific treatment and you know there's kind of strength in numbers so then through the numbers of other people that have um talked about what's happened to them and it creating a bigger story i guess and a bigger awareness it's um it's helped to bring these you know awful issues into everyone's consciousness rather than just the people being affected or just the communities being affected and i think that's one of the amazing things that that social media has done and is doing is it's gradually making us all aware of what life is like for other people who don't have our life experience and it's also helping to connect people with the same life experience to each other to enable them to you know form a larger group and then make make change happen make social change happen and so it's just so utterly horrific but i think possibly the murder um, by the police in america of george floyd because it was so clear what it was and it took such a long time and nothing happened over all those eight eight or nine minutes of the video of his murder no no one intervened and did anything and i think one of the things about that that made it different was that it wasn't someone getting shot which happens very quickly it it was like a very intentional deliberate murder by someone who knew that he could basically he could do that um and i think that's really helped everyone who doesn't come from from the black community um so basically you know more privileged white people it's helped them to see what's actually happening in society and make it more real and you know and hopefully well well i believe it will now create social change around you know the the poor treatment um of minorities um across the world hopefully yeah, I know, um, as I said, when I said move into the, the corporate space, I know they're doing a lot in terms of the education of it and what is racism, how to spot it and how to know when you're actually carrying out microaggression, that sort of stuff. Uh, these are coming into play yeah. now. These are being talked about now more so than ever before. Yeah. And it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. It's okay to be uncomfortable. But, but as yeah. part of being uncomfortable, if we get it to get it out and then we can get to some kind of resolution. And do you think there should be, uh, um, for example, a diversity and inclusion head in all all organisations and corporations or or should that simply be an expansion in the the HR role? Yeah, absolutely. We need need experts, right? It's not a simple, this is not a simple thing to do something about. You know, it's about creating cultural change. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we need to make change happen you need uh, guidance by experts who know what they're doing um and so you know for example i've seen some organizations setting up like the black leaders network um uh which i've joined as an ally and other organizations and you know i really think now is the time for companies for organizations to reach out to organizations that have expertise in this area for their help to to make that cultural change happen within the organization staying with corporations and um, but more so on the technology side um right. there is a 
push and a genuine need for diversity in AI and programming, artificial intelligence. Bearing in mind that some of my listeners yeah. may not be abreast of the, the current thinking on this topic, can you explain a bit of what that is all about and what does that look like? Also importantly, how this is definitely not a ticking box exercise, but rather a, a needed inclusion, perhaps with some examples. Sure. Well, so, you know, artificial intelligence software, which is making decisions, is being used by all sorts of organisations now to, to aid them in their decision making. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even things. So if we think about talking to Alexa or Siri, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's some algorithms that work in there, working out what to say from from you, you know, in terms of what response to give. Um, but there's all sorts of, um, you know, we've seen the, um, the cases in the media where it kind of go, goes wrong. So even like very basic uh, things like, um, well, there was, there was a, a video that kind of went viral a few months ago, which was um, a, a black guy putting his hand it's like in, the, um, in the bathrooms, putting his hand under the soap dispenser yeah. and the soap dispenser not not giving him any soap and then there's a white guy puts his hand under and so for some reason the way that the um the uh the mechanism or whatever's working inside that soap dispenser is working has not been programmed to recognize black skin or darker skin and so you know just from very very uh simple instances of um algorithms yes. of software of ai that hasn't got it right you can see quite clearly quite simply that um you know you can make completely the wrong decision based on how something is has been programmed and so at the moment i'm setting up a research center looking at bias in ai so looking bringing together government academia and industry mm -hmm. to look at how we can as much as possible, make sure that as little bias as possible is kind of programmed in at the beginning of creating any products and services where AI features or where software features. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I've, I've uh, sort of been in the software uh, kind of area in industry for a long time. And, you know, we, we always talk about trying to get all of the bugs out of software, you know, so, so trying to um, kind of create, I guess, in, in, in quotes, perfect software where there's nothing that's, that's actually wrong in it. So that's actually impossible. But I think as much as possible, we have to try and create products and services that are free from bias. And so there are lots of things that we can do towards that. But my setting up a research center is to bring together different types of stakeholders. Um, so, you know, not only technologists as well, but people from different backgrounds to come together to work out, well, what can we do and how can we provide best practice yeah. um, to help organisations make sure as much as possible that they've got as little bias in their uh, software as possible. Because the thing is, something that gets kind of coded in right at the beginning, if you can change it or, you know, have a look at it right at the very beginning mm -hmm. of the product uh, creation, it doesn't cost too much to to change it at the beginning but once you kind of get down the line of maybe it's been distributed to i don't know say a million users you know it, it costs a lot more to make change happen when um, lots more people are, are using it and uh, working with it so the idea is to 
kind of make a kind of, I guess, cost efficient uh, recommendations for sort of cost efficient um, uh, kind of lack of bias to be uh, the the starting place, you know. And I think I think a lot of that comes from working with diverse teams to start with is is always going to be a good idea. Uh, diversity of all sorts at the beginning of creating something because the thing is, if you if you have uh, too homogenous a group of people creating a product or a service, there's just going to be lots of uh, viewpoints, lots of information that they just don't take into account. And that's fine if your you if your end users or if your customers are going to be the same as the team that you've got developing the products in terms of a homogenous group, then maybe that's okay. But I would say these days um, we we expect our our customers, our service users to be from all different sorts of backgrounds in all different countries. And so, you know, we really need to build build the sort of non-bias in right from the very beginning um, to make sure that our products and services are, are fit for all our customers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'd just like to add, and uh, if you want to agree with me on this, um, for my listeners and, and those who are not versed in that space, when, when Sutu talks about the biases, it's kind of, it's not a deliberate bias, it's just that how an individual would think um, how things would work around him or her in that sense. So it's not a sort of a deliberate uh, uh, um, negative bias. It's just how one would think and program. You, you would do things according to how you react and feel and need things as opposed to think about yeah. the different demographics and what they need. Yeah. Absolutely. So more thinking of unconscious bias. So, yeah. yes, it's you know, if we're thinking bias. of... Um, the, the particular application of the soap yeah. dispenser. Yeah. So they, they, there's no way that that product could have been tested with someone with, who, you know, who was black with, with darker skin because it, it wouldn't have worked. And then the team would have realized straight away yeah. that it doesn't work, right? It's not fit for purpose for everybody. So, or if there was a, uh, a black developer as part of the team or a black manager as part of the team that were creating the product. This is just a very kind of simple example. Yeah. Yeah. Then that product wouldn't have gone into, it wouldn't have been put in any bathrooms um, because it's not fit for purpose. Um, but of course the people developing it didn't do that on purpose. Again, it's unconscious bias. But if you've got diverse teams, then you're much less likely to have these sort of problems because you're, product or service would have been created by a team that's diverse already so would have taken as many viewpoints into consideration yes. as possible yes i just wanted to add to that as uh, as well yeah. um okay um let's touch upon covid19 especially for those who can't get enough of it um um what is the impact it's had on both for you both for your business and personal life have you learned anything from it and has it changed you in any way i, th- I think um well, so in terms of my like professional life, so I would normally travel a lot. Yep. So I live in the south of England and I work in the north of England. So typically before COVID, most weeks I would have been traveling 600 miles up and down the country um, to go to work. Um, so I haven't been doing that. I also probably would have been in traveling internationally yeah. once, once or twice a month. Um, so I haven't been doing that either. Um, so I've been staying at home since well, for about the second week in March now. And um, so I have to say, 
from a, um, a negative viewpoint, it's mainly meant that I haven't been able to meet up with colleagues face to face and, and hang out or friends. Um, and so uh, that, but I mean, in a positive way, it's meant that I've, I've not been so stressed, I suppose, about, about lots of traveling all over the place and uh, getting to certain places by certain times, that kind of thing. And I guess uh, in that way, I'm probably more chilled out now than, uh, than <laughs> I was in March. Um, but I recognise I'm in a very, a very kind of privileged position in that I get on with my husband and my, I've got one daughter still at home. We get all get on with each other really well. We've got a nice house with a garden and we've got enough money to live on. So I completely recognise that because I'm in that position of privilege, then, you know, I've, I've um, yeah, I've enjoyed might be the wrong word but um you know it's adjusted, uh, adjusted adjusted and it's actually in some ways been quite nice to just be at home with family rather than sort of manically traveling the world yes, yes. um but i have to say i do love travel so it's not that i don't like it but uh yeah i'm kind of more chilled out i would say um, because you've discovered there's a lot of things you can get done that you don't need to travel to do yeah well kind of knew that anyway really because like working in tech and and uh you know, quite used to Zoom calls for all sorts of things, um, you know, for for years now, really, like Google Hangouts and stuff. We have been mm -hmm. doing them for however long they've existed. That's how long we've been using them. Mm -hmm. So that's, but but maybe not to the same extent. Um, so I've got used to doing, you know, several a day rather than maybe one or one a day or several a week. Um, but that's been fine. So it's been quite interesting to see everyone else kind of realising that actually you don't need to travel into yeah. work. Yeah. You know, and like, and like hearing from people who work for companies where you have to work nine to five or nine to six in the office every day. And I've always thought that was crazy. I mean, obviously for some jobs you have to do that, but I would say for most you don't. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting to see that companies can actually survive, you know, when they're, uh, you know, people aren't in the office, aren't meeting up. Yeah. And that, of course, you know, I've always thought it would save such a lot of money because they wouldn't need such large premises to to bring everyone together uh, in person. So companies could save loads of money by doing things, uh, more things remotely. Mm -hmm. um, and I think lots of companies are kind of waking up to that now, too, through this kind of being forced into doing it through this experience. A lot of companies are rethinking their models and we're going to see a lot of changes going forward with this. Yeah. Um, uh, another one of the things that has affected you because of um, COVID-19 um, is public speaking. You do a lot of speaking engagement and you've said you love this. Um, so can you tell my listeners about some of the, your most recent engagements pre-COVID-19 um, um, to what audience and the topics and what other engagements do you have um, coming up? Yes, um, we've recently just come out of lockdown um, and this pandemic has pretty much decimated the events industry. So for all yeah. of us that's been involved or what, whatever capacity, me included, in the, the events business, um, we know the damage that has been caused. Um, yeah. I suspect yeah. you have a story or two of this as well. So firstly, public speaking, what's happening with you there? Have you got anything coming up? Or perhaps tell us about something that you've done pre-COVID. And also, have you got any stories about the damage of COVID-19 on the events industry? Sure, well, so, yes, yeah, so I do quite a lot of public speaking. So I'd say probably about 50 to 70 events a year. So quite often one a week, sometimes two, sometimes two a day. 
um, mainly in the UK, but uh, international as well, US, um, Germany, France, uh, various different countries, um, Australia. So, so mainly um, UK based, but international as well. And, you know, I mainly, the main people that people, main thing that people want me to talk about is, is basically my kind of life story. I've got a bit of a Cinderella story, you know, so coming from extremely difficult circumstances um, and managing to, to carve out a a career and a better life for my um, children and myself. And then, um, you know, going on and being successful and then running campaigns and uh, doing things to, to try and change the world, to be more like the world, the world that I want it to be, I suppose. So, so that's the main thing I talk about. And, and a lot of it comes down to kind of resilience Mm -hmm. and believing in yourself. Um, And so, you know, I, um, I do lots of talks for all sorts of organizations actually for kind of like for their away days um, because I've got an interesting story and it's also kind of like struggle against adversity and managing to to kind of make it all work for me, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I'm, I'm always told that I'm inspiring and lots of people get in touch afterwards to say how they are now going to go and do, do, you know, they're going to just kind of, you know, I, I kind of say things like, you know, you've only got one life and, and we all get diff- difficult things happening to us in our lives. And so the people that are successful are the ones that keep going through the difficult times. Mm-hmm. And of course, when bad things happen, you have to stop and take pause. I'm not saying don't do that. But at the same time, if you if you kind of like get back on it and uh, start going towards your goals again, that's the way to, you know, to get to where you want to go. Whereas if you you get stuck in, wherever you are when difficult things happen then that's you know that's where you are so you know and my talk's called if I can do it so can you which is you know just to say that I I really don't think I'm anything special I've got I kind of feel lucky that um I've got the kind of resilience I guess that I have um and I guess I've gradually as I've had things happen to me and I've overcome them that's helped me to be more confident And I think because I've had some things which scared me half to death happen to me and and I've managed to get through those when challenges come up now, like none of them are as bad as some of the challenges that I've had previously. Um, You know, like when my mum died, that just completely devastated my whole life, really. Um, And, you know, other things that have happened to me. So now if I get a challenging situation, if I compare it to that, um, then, you know, it just seems so much less of a challenge, I think. And so I've kind of realized that if you if you do keep going and um, kind of like push yourself through the difficult times, you manage to to get back out to the good times again. And that, and that helps you to make your life more successful. So, yeah. So normally I'd be talking about 50 or 70 events a year um, this year. I'm not sure how many I've done exactly but some recent ones I've done so I spoke um on uh, a conference last week or the week before um run by an organization called we are the city which is uh, we are tech women they so they normally put on this massive amazing conference in person uh, in London and they took the decision quite early to to just do it all online um and I, I can't remember how many separate sessions they had. I think it was like a hundred or, or more um, over a day. And uh, I spoke, well, I did a fireside chat kind of keynote with them. Um, and they, they just did an absolutely incredible job of running a conference that was still fun to attend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, still you're able to, to network with people and, 
find out you know lots of new information make new contacts they're a very friendly organization as well run by um vanessa valley who's just incredible um and her team and you know that that really was the kind of blueprint of how to run an an online conference um so yeah in terms of i don't put on events myself i've got an agent uh, for speaking events and i think of course you know they've got a lot less business uh, than usual and uh, yeah i don't have that many bookings at the moment for the rest of the year um because i think everyone's kind of on pause at the moment trying to you know like second guess what's going to happen really but i think you know i think you can you can make a great success of online conferences um we actually we got an award i got an award a couple of weeks ago um for my um initiative uh run up uh, um through from durham university where i'm a professor um for our our um, we've got a retraining program that we came up with and got funded called tech up women so taking women um from underserved communities uh underserved backgrounds with degrees into a tech career so so we got an award uh for that and uh the sort of conference event that they held for the awards was really good i'm not sure what platform they use but they had kind of you could go and sit at a table quote, uh, on the platform and, and chat people. And they had, you know, like when you go to in person, like birds of a feather kind of sessions, they have some title on the table, you know, the round table, you can go and sit with other people. So they kind of had that as well. So, you know, the, 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 the online table would have a subject and you could double click on it and join the table and start talking to those people. And then, you know, once that conversation had finished, you could go off to another table. Um, So, so that worked really well in that there were some, you know, like normal conference sessions where people are speaking, people can ask questions. And then uh, in the breaks, you could sit, sit at a table and uh, chat to people too. You've just finished talking about um, public speaking and and your topic theme seems to be more about, inspiring um, individuals to move from one state to another. I know the story, it's a great story, it's an incredible story, um, you should be proud of that story, and it's very um, motivational. And um, the, 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 what the question I'd like to end on um, is pretty much, you're doing a lot of that, but what um, will make Sue Black, OBE, rest? Um, what should you see in front of you or know is in place or being done that will make you say, okay, I've done what I needed to do. It's all okay now. And I'll retire in the South of France, as I mentioned, where the grandchildren can come and visit, or of course, where you prefer to retire. What do you think should be done outside of your control that if it's in place, you will say, okay, I don't need to do anything more. Oh, wow. Oh, well, I have to say, I don't think we'll believe, I don't believe we'll get to that place for me. Um, <laughs> well, no, I, imagine, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I would want there to be no poverty in the world. Yeah. Um, and for everyone to have uh, equal opportunity throughout their life, you know, no matter where they come from or, or, you know, or what they look like or anything. And so I don't, I don't see that being solved in my lifetime. Unfortunately, I wish it could be. Um, but I'll, I'll be carrying on to um, to try and make the world uh, the way I want it to be, I guess, until until it's my last days, I think. Yeah. All right. So basically you're saying you're going to be working tirelessly until <laughs> no longer work. That's what it sounds like. I think so. But the thing is, you know, that doesn't mean I'm kind of like 
doing that 24 hours a day because you know because we can uh, you know the particularly the more senior i get the more i can influence situations um and you know the more i can i see my role as as helping others to make the world be how i want it to be and so i you know i do a lot now around i guess advocating for other people for other groups uh to try and empower them and i've always really i think been about trying to encourage and help and advocate for other people and other organizations to to change the world to be the way I want to see it you know like for example my my work with as trustee on the board of comic relief you know I I'm in there Mm -hmm. to influence decision making and and help comic relief be an organization that can help as many people as possible um to create a just world free from poverty which is which is the aim of comic relief um so, you know, so I'm, you know, it's not just about me kind of getting out there. It's about me helping organizations and uh, individuals to to do the same thing, I guess, to do the things that I believe in. And I think I think I should throw out that last question because I don't think you're going to retire even if you get <laughs> what you want. So you're going to continuously work. Because I, I love what I'm doing, right? So it doesn't actually seem like yeah, work. I love what you're doing. I, I love it. Your lifeline and, you know... There's no other way of working. So, uh, Professor Sue Black OBE, many thanks for your time and insight. Thanks very much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you. For helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.